have you been listening to Making Chips prior to? Yeah, yeah, I've listened to several episodes. And like when we visited you, you had already kind of had a little bit of experience with who we are and, yep. and just kind of normal guys in the industry. I know what you're going to say. Who do you like the most? Well, I mean, <laughs> everybody knows the new guy is the best. But who has the nicest beard? I have the only beard. Well, yeah. you got a little scruff going, Jim. Yeah, a little bit. If the sound of a machine tool removing metal gets your blood pumping, then you are Metal Working Nation. This is Making Chips, where we talk all things metalworking, engineering and design, production and tooling combined with business best practices, technology, marketing, news, and new media for manufacturing professionals. Here are your hosts. Let's make some chips. Hello, Metalworking Nation. My name is Jason Zenger, and I will be your host for today. I'm joined by my two co-hosts, Jim and Nick. I would affectionately call Nick the microwave popcorn of manufacturing because, you know, he's just always <laughs> so nervous and ready to pop. And Jim, my other co-host, he is the fashionista of manufacturing because he's always got on those name brand suits. Well, at least, at least you know my brand, right? You know what? Like you what? don't even realize how accurate you are about the microwave popcorn thing because <laughs> I just went to this chiropractor health clinic thing and they did all this scans and like my spine is all like hot. It's all popcorned. Yeah, and, you and, were then, she, and then that. she cracks me and it pops everywhere. And basically, it's a nervous system scan and I have some nervous system problems. Are you nervous so. because you're so pressured to grow your company? Is that the problem, <laughs> yeah. Nick? I don't have a hundred years. Yeah, you don't have 100 years. So that's actually going to be what we're going to be talking about today is can you scale your business rapidly after 100 years of God, that's a long what time. What do you call like just slow growth, stagnation, yeah. however you want to do it. I mean, there's a lot of manufacturing companies out there that have just been trickling along mm -hmm. for many, many years, multi-generational. I mean, a lot of our audience, a lot of the manufacturing nation are multi-generational family-owned businesses. I bet you that industry is probably the most popular among multi-generational family ownership the, the of, any, oh, manufacturing? of any industry out there. I, I would imagine, yeah. Maybe doctors or dentists It's certainly not marketing companies or... No, not dentists as much, Jim, or doctors, because you have to get a lot of training in order to become a doctor or dentist. Yeah, like everyone has to get a PhD. I mean, I do know some multi-generational in that industry but like of course manufacturing the threshold is low i mean they let you in jim i know so i don't know why but yeah. they did i mean you just had a bartending degree and they let you become <laughs> a machinist <laughs> degree it's, it goes hand in hand i he guess yeah he, he got his eight thousand hours of drinking and they they gave him the bartending he degree. graduated high school he was asleep <laughs> for most of it but he could mix a drink i really so. did not like school i gotta be honest with you guys and i'm sure you know it i was not a big school guy so manufacturing was perfect for me i want to say like a hundred years of being in business is impressive for any company so even if there was a hundred years of rapid growth that's still a long time to be in business yeah absolutely so normally at this time we talk about our manufacturing news we get into that but we're going to actually put that at the end okay it's going to be very interesting to talk about because our guest matthew nix is going to walk us through some manufacturing news he's going to talk about what the outlook is for the steel industry. So that's Ooh, going to be really, some really, really interesting cool. stuff. So at this time, we always talk about like kind of some new stuff going on in our lives. So why don't we go around the table? Nick, I'll start with you. <laughs> um, did well, you get a popcorn machine? Yeah. It, what's <laughs> I, going on, man? I did kind of talk about that. So I don't know that the Metalworking Nation needs to know this, but I have some back problems that I'm getting fixed. I got a chiropractor for the first time. 
They're like giving me all sorts of adjustments. Honestly, that chiropractic care is awesome. Yeah, it's really I cool. It. I see all these videos on social media where they're like cracking the heck out of somebody's back. And I'm always like, man, I really want that. Because I haven't been sleeping good. And yep. the reason is sleeping like, well. Sleeping well. So I'm like, my back will flare up and then I'll flip over and then, you know, sleep for a little bit. And then it'll flare up and I'll flip over. So it's waking me up three or four times a night. And yeah. I am have solving you, that problem. Have you used the trick that I gave you on sleeping on your side? The pillow. Uh, pillow between your knee and around your arms? Yeah, I have actually. Oh, good. Is I it helping? Have. How's uh, that working out? Well, I just like move around a lot. I'm hyper when I'm sleeping. So oh. like I put them there and then. Are you left side or right side or middle? You're I'm all over the place. Yeah, You're supposed to sleep on one side or the other, which yeah. has to do with your I'm heart. I'm left, yeah. I'm right. I'm anyway, left. moving on. Yes. So I'm going to ask you personally, like, what's going on. Forget about business, personally, since... Oh, no, I have two, actually. I have personal and business. Save the one for the next episode. Yeah. No one cares about your business right yeah. now. Okay. What's going on Just personally, kidding. Jim? <laughs> going to Florida in two days. Kids are getting married. Friends of ours. Nice. Kids are getting married, so... And you're going to party it up, huh? We're going to have fun, because they're from Chicago, and you know how what Chicagoans do it. We go hard, right? Yeah. Yeah. So are it's going to be a lot of fun. Are you going to Miami? No, we're going to Orlando. Orlando. Yeah, cool. it's going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, nice. Looking forward fun. to it. Nice. And we're going to take a couple extra days for ourselves because we can. Nice. Good. Well, for me personally, it just kind of like warmed my heart yesterday. And you guys know the reason why I was late for dinner. So in the spirit of loving your neighbor, my wife has like adopted a refugee family. Oh, cool. From where? From what country? Cool. From Afghanistan. Okay. And she's essentially at their side helping them to get acclimated to the United States. And she spent five hours with the mom and the baby getting them to the doctor and you know getting the baby checked out and taken care of and stuff like that and having translators on the phone and it was exhausting for her but she was doing her That's part awesome. to trying to love our neighbors and it was yeah bless your heart amanda zanger yeah. i know you're listening <laughs> No, she's never listened to it. <laughs> I'm episode. just kidding. So we could have these discussions. Of, any about of her. our wives have listened to any episodes. <laughs> exactly. So it was really nice. And you know, she was late getting home. I was like, "Don't worry about it." I was like, "Jim and Nick can wait for me for dinner." So sure. It'll, and then it'll we, we didn't. We kind of didn't. Yeah. We didn't really get anything. You came at a perfect time. Yeah. yeah we got exactly. bread. That's so that was nice. I really we broke it. bread. We did. That's yes. right. There you go. Let's get into the episode. Nick, could you introduce our guest? Sure. I already mentioned his name once, but you know, go ahead. Yeah. So our guest is the president of Nick's companies, not my companies. The, it's NIX companies. He started working at the family business at age eight, sweeping the floor. Wow. How many people have a sweeping the floor uh, yeah, story? All of us. Yeah. All of all us. us yeah. uh, cleaning machinery for $5 a Saturday, not an hour, $5 a day. Wow. Wish we could find that kind of labor right now. Later, he began working in the shop as a summer intern, learning the ropes. In addition to learning the technical trade aspects of the job, he credits much of his customer service, business development skills, and values to the lessons he learned working with his father and grandfather. Matthew began working full-time for the company in 2004 after attending Vincennes University for welding technology. Since that time, the once mom-and-pop business has grown nearly 100 times to 125-plus team members with a national reach. Nick's Companies has been named to the Inc. 5,000 fastest-growing companies in America for seven consecutive wow. years. Welcome to the show, Matthew. Welcome, Matthew. Matthew. And thank you for dinner last night, by the way. You're welcome. Thanks. And that's going to be like our new entrance fee is that you have to take the three of us out to a steak and wine dinner the evening before and put the wine list in my hands. Yeah, yes. exactly. But have that we was ever very had nice. an Inc. 5000 
a business as a yes. guest? We, yes. I, I, Trisha I, Miller, Red Yeah, Caffeine. there's been some. Yeah. Have yeah. we ever had one that has done it for seven consecutive years? Mm, I don't know years? about that. I don't know. You have to apply first, you know, so we need to, you know. That's really We need to promote man. that amongst the manufacturing companies. I think that would be a good way to get manufacturing out there. But anyway, this is not about them. This is about you, Matthew. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I don't know if you asked our CFO of seven consecutive years to think 5,000 is a good thing. He might not agree, but... Is that right? We, we joke about it. You know, when you're growing that fast, you're... Uh, is it based on revenue growth? It, then? It is, yeah. Yes, so, yeah. You, yeah, you could be... You're, you can be burning some cash <laughs> growing that <laughs> fast. Go. But, sure. yeah, we're getting that growth under control. Now, that's actually some one of the things I want to talk about later. We've got that on the list of questions, too. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's start from the beginning. I, I know you got some questions queued up, so why don't you start, Jim? Oh, well, I'm just going to hit it off with my own question. So, Matthew, can you take us back to, what, 100 years ago when your great-grandfather founded Nick's company? What was the core competencies? What was the skill set that your grandfather wanted to get going on? He was an entrepreneur, obviously. He wanted to start his own business to have a successful, healthy... You don't want to just know Matthew's manufacturing no, story. I want to you want to know the legacy. Back. Okay. I want to go way back in time and learn about the business, the core fundamentals of the business. So go ahead. Tell yeah. us. So it's actually my great, great grandfather. Oh, great, great. I'm fifth generation. My brother's partner with me as well, the principal owner. So our great, great grandfather came from Germany in the 1880s. And okay. He actually was in the blacksmithing business in Southern Illinois for a number of years. And sometime around the turn of the century, he came to the little town that we're still headquartered in, Poseyville, Indiana. You guys visited yeah, a few yeah, weeks we ago just did our for, event there. Yeah. for the live podcast. So yeah, blacksmithing, so, does that mean like making swords and shields? And <laughs> No, he wasn't making swords okay. and shields. It was agriculture okay. uh, based, predominantly agriculture. You know, anything from hooks for gates to shoeing horses. The shackles. And, uh, yeah, the rumor <laughs> is my great-grandpa's brother, who was also a blacksmith, and he was out west somewhere. The rumor is you shoot a horse for Jesse James. So yeah. no proof for that, but it's kind of a fun little Wow, little probably tidbit. making horseshoes, all that yeah. kind of yeah, stuff. They did. Yeah, they yeah. So evolved. He came around the turn of the century. We go with since 1902 in our logo because that's the earliest record we could find of anything. He presumably started in 1900. I can't imagine he sat around for two years and didn't do anything. But No, probably not. So 1900 to 1902. We'll go with 02. So we're celebrating 120 years here wow, this awesome. year. Wow, that's excellent. Oh, my yeah. God. And I then, can't even believe that. Yeah. And then great-grandpa took it over. I was one of five boys and continued to stay in the blacksmithing business. However, he acquired the first welding machine for our business, but also in our community at the time in 1941, a brand new uh, welding machine. A stick welder. A stick welder, yeah, yeah arc welder, yeah. which we have on display in our foyer. We've kind of created a museum in our foyer. Cool. It was a pet project of mine going all the way back to the earliest anvil we have up through the welding machine. And I'm going to add some more machine tools into it as That's we continue awesome. to, to grow and evolve. So great-grandpa bought the welding machine in 41. And then they evolved into a mom-and-pop welding shop. So we're talking about fixing broken farm equipment, primarily. Because mm. mm. it was agriculture. That's right. Mm. Yeah. Yes. You know, a yes. little bit of the oil fields were in the area. Did a little bit of working for the oil industry. And then as semi-tractor trailers became more popular, we were welding on semi-trailers and, and things of that nature. But it was mostly heavy equipment repair business. Sure, sure. And then Grandpa took the business over, continued to be a mom-and-pop welding shop. And then my dad joined the business after... In what year? He graduated high school in 72, and he worked for a couple of years and then joined the business. So some 74, 75, okay. he joined the business. Sometime in the 80s and early 90s, dad started getting into a little bit of what I would call commercial sheet metal fabrication. There were some small manufacturing plants around our area that we might build chutes or hoppers and 
some safety rails and platforms. So you were like uh, shearing the sheet metal, bending it, welding yeah, it together. Yeah, plasma kind of cutter, you know, wire welder, okay, gotcha. little handheld plasma cutter, wire welder, sure, iron worker, bandsaw, you know, a kind of a typical little mom and pop welding shop. But no like high-end CNCs at that time or, or anything like no, that? No, yeah. We had a little South Bend lathe and a Bridgeport milling machine, a All threading right. machine. One of my early memories in the shop is... Standing in front of the oyster threading machine, we would make a lot of U-bolts. An oyster threading machine? Yeah, oyster threading machine, yeah. And so we would I've make U-bolts. So I would thread the ends of half-inch shaft, the three-quarter-inch shaft. The, it was a power threader. Oh, it was a power threader. Die, okay. I would put the dies in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we would run the threading machine. And the threading machine, this and was an old And you'll put all block. the cutting oil on yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Put the cutting oil on it. Yeah. This was an old block building. And the damn thing was the hottest building I've ever seen in my life. And the threading machine sat in a big window that faced the west. So in the afternoon, oh. I would be like, the sweat would just be like yes. pouring down my face. And, and you're wiping your safety glasses. I can't see the, the threading dies to get them set right. You know, I'll never, ever forget that. It was no. like, but those things are burned in my memory. And, and now I look back on them with fondness. So how many employees were the company at that time about? It was just great grandpa and then him and his son. And then my grandpa and my dad together. My aunt joined the business along the way. She was supposed to uh, do the bookkeeping, which, you know, typical in a family business, the wife or sister or mom will do yep. that. Pretty quickly, she was running a lathe and a milling machine when she wasn't keeping the books. You know, so so my great grandpa had a saying, everybody in my family works. And so that stretched to the kids and mom and of everybody. Course. So that was it. And I joined the business, as you mentioned in my bio, I worked growing up in the business, of course, like most of us did. I joined full-time in 2004 after going to trade school for just a year. What trade? Vincennes University. It's a really nice technical school, two-year associate degree technical school. So oh, they also had a one-year program. Did they push you into going into welding technology? Uh, no, not really. I mean, dad went there for the machine trades. They've got a great machine trades program there as well. Like a machinist yeah, apprenticeship the, yeah, program. Yeah, you can get a two-year uh, two associate degree yeah, there yeah, of um, course. for that. And they had a one-year welding certificate program. Okay. And I, th I thought I was going to degree like Jim got. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know about that. But so anyways, yeah, I uh, went through that. They never really pushed me, but I, I mean, they wanted me to go do something, get some, some and, and certificate or sort of get out and get an education. In hindsight, business school probably would have been much better off. I, I should have learned Excel spreadsheets and PowerPoints and such, but I've learned it along the way. You can go on YouTube way. and learn that. Yeah. yeah so yeah, exactly. it was just four family members uh, when I joined and in 2010. I hired the first team member outside the family. We actually need to update my bio. We're about 150 team members strong wow. now. So, so just 12 years ago, yeah. you hired the first non-family member. That's right. Wow. And now you're yeah. at 150 people. Yeah, roughly, right? That's wow. pretty quick. Person or two. Matthew, that's really uh, impressive. <laughs> that, that's a business education right Yes, there. it sure is. So did you just decide, okay, it's time to scale this business rapidly or... Did you have some sort of outside influence kind of like guiding you along? Yeah, a great question. People ask me that all the time. I mean, I think looking back, I didn't realize I was an entrepreneur, so to speak. But as I look back now, there were signs of that along the way. And I just was never satisfied with the status quo. And you know, I want to preface that by saying, like, I have a deep admiration for my dad and grandfather about their simple way of life and just their ability to be content with the way they are. My grandpa's, you know, in his 80s and he still works in his garden every day. And, you know, they never wanted for anything in their life. They always had a great blue collar, middle class living and it worked for them. And so 
I want to it start. worked for a long yeah, time. It worked too, for a man. lot. Of, yeah, it worked. They defied the odds. You know, they the, old sure saying, did. the old saying, if you're not growing, you're dying. I mean, yes. they defied the odds. And a lot of people have great blue collar businesses like that. So I admire that. Some days I'm even envious mm-hmm. of that. Oh, I'm you know, sure. Because you know, once you start Simple. down the path we're on, there's no looking back. So, yeah, where you can just jump behind the welder and perform a service right. for somebody, yeah. go home, and not have to worry about it anymore. Exactly. But so, I, but I, along the way, I've had to come to peace with God makes us all differently. And while I admire how they uh, live their life and how they ran the business, that just wasn't my path. And so I wasn't thinking those things out at that time. But this is looking back in retrospect. So to your question. No, there wasn't like one day where I woke up and said, hey, I think I'll grow the business. It was just this constant restlessness and pushing my dad. For example... It was kind of in you that you wanted to be a growth yeah. generation instead of just kind of yeah. progressing along. A great example is we had a welding service truck. We would go out in the field and fix uh, broken farm equipment or weld on you know, oil rigs. And we didn't even have our phone number on the service truck. I wanted to put the phone number on the service truck. And my dad's comment was, well, everybody already knows our phone number. Oh, no. <laughs> so that, Seriously? That shows you the paradigm yeah. change wow. there. I mean, so it was little things like that. I would be out in the field and call back to the office because I might need materials or something. I could never get through. The phone line was always busy, and we didn't have an answering machine or anything. And you didn't have call waiting. Yeah, so I said, well, we need a second phone line. You know, it was like maybe, what, 30 bucks a month for yeah. a second phone line. So I fought those kind of things oh, along God. the way. Again, if you don't have aspirations to grow, you don't need those right. things. Right. Yeah, you want but, it to be busy so you don't have to do right, another job right, that yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's why. So it's just simple things like that. And then that evolved into, you know, he gave me a little bit more rope and a little bit more rope. And a building came available across the street. And I said, Dad, I want to buy that building and expand. I said, I want to hire four or five people. And I'm going to go sell enough work to keep all of them busy. And he said, I don't think there's enough work out there. Oh, no. But he was only partially wrong. He meant because, out there where he could yeah, that's see. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, His version yeah. of out there and my version of out was, there were two was totally... Was a two-mile radius yeah, of the building. Right. Yeah, yes. yeah. And today, you know, we're nationwide company, so the bulk. Before we get too carried away, how has this business changed? Because obviously, when you were in 2010, when you hired your first person and you had five people, now you have 150, and the industries that you serve have changed dramatically. Sure. Well, he, so from he's this, no longer sweating behind the welder. No. That's so one change. From a blacksmith <laughs> to a welding shop to a... Diversified Metal Solutions Provider. There you go. Boom. I like how you said that. Yes. He was ready with that. <laughs> what industries does Nick's service, Matthew? Yeah, so we still serve the legacy customer base. And, and actually, we do more agriculture and transportation-oriented work than we ever did. But that's the rest of the business. The scale has outpaced that. So Of course. We, we're commercial and industrial primarily. You know, So anything from heavy industrial and in the power plants to your typical manufacturing customers. Got anything that, that might be made out there, we thank serve you. those customers. Yeah, thank you. So how did you accomplish that rapid scaling? So you mentioned that, you know, I want to hire these five people and I'm going to find jobs for them. So to a degree, you're out there selling. Yeah. Okay. What was the other primary driver? I know you've made acquisitions. Did you have a big client that was like, hey, Matthew, you guys do a great job. I've got $5 million worth of business to yeah. hand over to you. What was the primary driver of that growth? Yeah, I wish that was the case. But, but <laughs> again, restless, always trying to challenge the status quo. And I was just out there hustling and grinding, trying to find a way to grow the business outside of what we were doing and mostly without success. And we would find something here or there. But eventually, about I guess it was about 2012, we landed an industrial contract to build modular steel buildings for the coal mine industry. And that one contract doubled our business overnight. Uh, we were doing about a half a million in sales at the time, and we got a half a million dollar contract. So 
that really was the Was beginning. that just an eye-opener for you? Yeah, You're like, so wow, I could bid these, I can win these, yeah. and then and rapidly we, and, scale. Yeah, and we made money on them. We delivered them on time. But we didn't have enough equipment. We didn't have enough people. So we actually, my brother and I actually took turns working double shift at the time. So we would do the legacy customers during the day, and then we hired a few people. That's what started scaling up our hiring. We hired a few people to do night shift Monday through Thursday night. And Adam and I would take turns covering the night shift. So I would work Managing Monday and Wednesday night. That's yeah. right. Yeah. So we'd swing a double shift every other day. So at first you were doing twice as much with the same amount of people until you could bring in, you know. One some... and a half times the people doing two times. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah. that sort of laid the foundation. Were you really drained after a while? Like, I mean... I don't even remember. You were, you were probably I mean, working hard, right? Never and worked. then now all of a sudden you got 50% more that you have to accomplish. You don't remember being like, man, no, I can't sustain this. It was exciting. No, I mean, I love it. Do you have kids at the time? Or? No. Yeah. You know, we were fortunate. Yeah. It, it did happen before we had kids. And I mean, we were just having fun and just winging it as we went. Yeah. And you mentioned scaling and I want to speak to that because that was back when we were just growing. Today okay. we're scaling and I'll, What's the difference? Yeah. So let's yeah. talk about the difference. Yeah. I think I know where you're going with this, yeah. but talk about the yeah. difference and yeah. talk about how you accomplish both of those. Yeah, I think there's a couple of differences between growth and scaling. So back then, I think one of the differences, often growth is something that happens to you. And whether maybe it does or doesn't, but at least it's less thought out and, and structured. So it's that job that you didn't know that you would get. That's right. That doubles you think your it's business. organic? Growth yeah, is organic? Yeah, it's typically organic, and okay. it, it's less structured, and it happens to you, so you land this huge job. Because sometimes that huge job you land that you weren't expecting to get, it's not always a good thing. The second difference, I would say, is there's a cap on growth, where a scaling is somewhat limitless. I mean, maybe the only limit would be, like, the market cap of the industry you're in. But is outside it, of is that, it strategic, would you say? More strategic, and it's infinitely scalable until you've hit... Which none of us are close to that. Right. I mean, <laughs> a market cap in our industry is billions of dollars. Right. right. So that would be how I would differentiate it. And in the early days, it was sort of growth for us. It was growth for growth's sake, you know? Mm -hmm. I think there was some ego involved. I mean, I'm trying to prove myself, trying to prove to my dad and my grandpa that we can do this thing. Yeah. And then somewhere along the way, you mature a little bit and you look up and you say, you had a perfectly good family business and things are different now. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Mm -hmm. Why are we doing this? And that was the beginning of a couple of years of deep discernment about the path forward, which ultimately led to our strategic planning process. And that's really the moment. I still remember the moment. It was much more, I think, concrete than the early days of like, when did you become an entrepreneur? This was a moment where by the time I had assembled a, a management team and we all sat around a table together, I can remember where we were, when we were there, and we did our first strategic plan and we left there with one piece of paper of like three to five year roadmap of where yep. we wanted to go. That was the beginning. So did you follow like a specific framework for the strategic planning? Like we all talk about EOS all the time, but when you did that first strategic plan, were you winging this strategic plan? Or? Winging it, yeah. A series of books I had read. I'm familiar with EOS now. We use a system that parallels that very closely. But it was sort of a hodgepodge of books I had read and, and people that mentors that I had talked That's to. That's kind of really what EOS is. It's, it, it's it, a hodgepodge. It's a hodgepodge of books like uh, Good yep. to Great. Sure, or, yeah. Uh, Good to Great was a big influencer early on that I read and cool. many of those, yeah. Okay, so then was the plan the catalyst for the scaling then? It was, yeah. We were already growing. I mean, by that time, we'd already grown the business four or five times over. Mm -hmm. But to go from there to 100x, yes. that plan is what moved us from growth to scaling. Okay. Hey, Jason, IMTS is coming up Woo September 12th through September 17th. I'm excited. McCormick Place, downtown Chicago. It's going to be a big, big, big event. 
We missed 2020. COVID obviously got in the way of that one. But I but think the party is on. The party is on. I think it's going to come back bigger, better, and more powerful than ever. I know. I've heard about all the latest and greatest technology because the IMTS team gave us a preview, and it's going to be exciting. It's going to be really exciting. But you know, I've been hearing about hotel prices lately that have yeah. gone, oh my gosh, hotel prices across it's the expensive. country. But do you know that IMTS has negotiated hotel rates with a lot of different hotels. Oh yeah, they've got great reduced rates. So you don't have to come stay at my house no. in, in Chicago during IMTS. <laughs> no, don't stay, Jason, unless you want to play with kids for the whole time you're there. But yeah, go to imts.com slash hotels. Yes. And there's a gigantic listing of all the hotels, negotiated rates. They have hotels in the city, very conveniently located near McCormick Place. Or if you want to have something a little bit less costly, they have hotels in the suburbs as well. So there's a lot of options. IMTS.com forward slash hotels. And don't forget to register. So how did you accomplish the scaling? Like what was the formula for that? Yeah. So we have what we call it our three-legged stool or three-prong approach to growth. And so it's pretty common to separate acquisition and organic, but we have a third category. So we have acquired growth, and then we have what we call incremental organic growth, and then our strategic or innovative organic growth. Yeah, define those for us. Yeah, that's interesting. So we're going to go acquire businesses, of course. That's the acquisition part, which we can speak more about. That's certainly been a part of it. The incremental organic, that's your basic blocking and tackling of, we need to expand the sales team next year. We need to improve the website. We need to improve our manufacturing efficiency, all those things that allow you- Win more jobs, yeah, you know, right. whatever. And then the innovative organic piece is, we're going to launch an entirely new product or service line, or we're going to invest in this huge equipment technology investment. You know, things that are, I guess one way that to gets describe you to like it, a new market. Yeah. yeah or yeah. maybe something that spans across multiple years that mm -hmm. would move it for us. There's not like a hard and fast line between the two, but we kind of look at those three buckets and we're always trying to grow in each of those three buckets and relatively speaking, a third, a third, a third. And it's funny looking back, growing nearly a hundred X, it turns out that just under a third of all that growth was acquired revenue. Okay. So now we've taken companies that we've acquired and we've grown their revenue tremendously after acquisition, but I don't consider that acquired right. yeah, revenue. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. So the employees you have now, you said you had roughly 150. How many of those did you inherit through acquisition, would you say? Yeah, great question. Probably... Uh, or just like a fraction or yeah, something? Yeah, I don't know, 40 or 50 Maybe 40 so to a 60. Th a third. A third. Yeah. yeah, no, yeah. There's another third. Yeah. Wow. So we have eight different locations and business units now, all of which were either acquisitions or startups. They all operate independently and they're part of our parent company. They all range from 10 to 18 people at each, you know, mm. so it's a, it's a series of small businesses. Right. Is that strategic the way you want to build the company is through that series of small businesses as it opposed is. to having one larger Very business. interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Our, our mission is be big, act small. And so that extends to every part of the way we operate. But that, yes, we're going to have multiple small to medium-sized entities. Okay. Now, previously when we were talking, you had mentioned about equity as it relates to your leadership team in the company. Was that a part of the growth, you believe? Absolutely. How did that work? How did you come to that decision? The first part from moving growth to scaling was that strategic planning. And then along the way, had an investor help us get started early on to do one. We started an industrial coatings business where we did sand. We'd still do today, sandblasting, painting, and powder coating. Had an investor help us start that business unit. 
And along the way, we had the opportunity to buy him out, and we merged everything together under one parent company at the time. With the opportunity to buy our one and only investor out, my brother and I just sat down, and we had assembled a great senior leadership team, today our executive team, and we decided that we would just have the senior leadership team. We approached them about the opportunity of buying out the investment partner. So the company bought them out, took back the stock, and then over a period of a few years, we sold that stock to our four executive team members that are outside the family. And I would absolutely say that that has been a key component to continuing to scale the organization. Okay. And why is that specifically? We could probably understand some of the obvious stuff, but I'd just like to know what that transformation was with your senior leadership team. Yeah. I mean, we all have strengths and weaknesses. You know, I'm the visionary and, and I'm the one out uh, looking for the next opportunity for growth and moving the needle forward. And you need tactical people. You need people that are really good with systems and processes and controls. And if you're familiar with EOS, you know, they talk in traction, they talk about the two. The, the integrator. Yeah, the integrator. And yeah, the visionary. Right. Visionary right. integrator. Uh, so it's those kinds of things. So with six of us who are all equity owners in the, in the company. You and your brother and then the four senior right. leaders. Yep. Yeah. And their operation roles. Finance. One's the CFO and one's the VP of business development and administration. So we're covering all those functions and we all have strengths and weaknesses, but everybody is locked in for the long term and when we're all rowing in the same direction. Okay. So you think it would have been different if you hadn't made that step. And I'm asking for my own knowledge. Selfish because I've, reasons. Well, I've thought about these. Well, it would be unselfish for me to do it, but like I've thought about this from my own perspective. So I really want to know what you believe would have been that difference. Well, it would have been different, but that's not to say it's for everyone. I mean, I consulted quite a few people about this, people that were highly respected, some big family businesses that were adamantly against it, and they've been very successful. So how can I argue, you know, one's a billion dollar family business. Mm -hmm. How can I argue that my way is the only way? I mean, it's worked for them, right? We ultimately had to decide what made sense for us. And I say we as in our family, and we just felt like that's the way we wanted to run the business. It's interesting because I've had these discussions with a business coach of mine, and he's a big advocate of phantom stock, but you, you just went all in with real equity. Yes, at the top of the org chart. That phantom stock, I hate the word phantom stock. It wasn't a PR marketing person that came up with that word. I can tell you that. (laughs) But we are looking at a model, long-term incentive plan. Sounds like fool's gold. Right, right. (laughs) Long-term incentive plan. We're looking at a similar model for the next level down the org chart uh, that would mimic equity as much as possible, simply because we've seen the fruits of what it's like to have owners. I want owners, not renters. Right. And so how do we get more people feeling like owners the, the challenge is that if you get too many people in the equity of the company, it just becomes difficult to govern. It kind of sounds like a, like a nepotism repellent, too, because it, it it's is. not all contained in one family where, you know, people are like, oh, we can make excuses for this guy or That's this right. girl yeah. in the family. It's, hey, I would say it's not yeah. just our family now. Yeah, we run the business in a more mature manner because that we have other owners. Sure. You know, it's interesting because we had a previous episode of Making Chips where we talked about ESOPs and that's another way of looking at it. And I would encourage the Metalworking Nation to go back and listen to those. They were great episodes. They were. They weren't just great because Nick wasn't there to distract. No, I'm just kidding, Nick. No, they were great. We had a great guest on and he was a really big advocate of turning the entire company over to the team in an equal format. So it's interesting the way that you've done it versus the way that he's done it. But both of you have been successful doing it. Yeah, and ESOP's something that we've considered down the road. I mean, that's typically your larger scale organization to make that work. Well, he's smaller than you. Yeah, really? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. it's interesting. Yeah, Yeah. interesting. We will probably use it as a secondary exit strategy if the next generation 
wouldn't take over the business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are strongly consider that as an exit trade versus selling it to an outside buyer. Yeah, how old is your oldest child right now? Eight. And then do you have the oldest child among your generation? Yeah, I have three. They're eight, six, and 16 months. And then my brother has two. We are hopeful. That so you started when you were eight. Has your eight-year-old committed to <laughs> running this business yet? We, we named him um, Charles after our founder, and my dad's also Charles, so no pressure at all. Yeah, right. Wow. So he's Charles the third. Oh, no, I guess third. it wouldn't be he because just, yeah. he skipped it. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. too bad. But he's asked about coming in, and you know, safety factor is a little different today. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but right. it's a different world. As soon as I feel comfortable about him being there, sweeping the floor and cleaning the machines, and staying and doing it in a safe manner, which probably isn't the too distant future, he'll be there. Yeah, well, great. you know, another previous guest, Titan Gilroy, he's a big advocate of training him on the software first before you bring him into the shop. So maybe get him going on that curriculum, and you just never know when he might be ready to yeah, start true. programming. Yeah, he probably could move circles around me on anything technology related. There you go. So Matthew, with the outlook of the multitude of baby boomers retiring now and into the next few years, do you believe that acquisition is a tactic that manufacturing leaders should be more proactive about? You've got a company that's doesn't have any future. They don't have a business succession plan in place. A lot of people trying to sell. Yeah. And they've got this talent pool yeah. that's there. Yeah. I would definitely think, but tell us about how that's gone for you. Yeah, because yeah. you've looked twice, Jim, and I know the two companies that you looked at acquiring and you just decided not to. Yeah, no. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't for you. It's not for me at this time. And, you know, I would understand how there's a little trepidation to acquire another company because you're like, what kind of skeletons are in that closet? What is it going to look like once I buy it? Are they hiding something from me that's going to explode on me the next day after I buy it? So, I mean, those are all it's like buying a valid concerns. Car. Yeah. Yeah. It's it like could be a lemon. Car. It could be it a lemon. It could be a lemon. Yeah. And I've acquired at Zenger's, I mean, I've been through five acquisitions, some small, some large. And there were some challenges now and then. So yeah, what does it look like for the metalworking nation to say, I'm going to adopt this as a strategy because there's so many people that are going to be retiring, say like Jim, who, but maybe somebody that doesn't have yeah. a son in the business. Yeah. Yeah. The short answer is yes, but there's a lot that goes into that. So first, I think you're talking about acquisition as a strategy. That's different than just doing a acquisition because you're opportunistic and like there was a competitor down the road that it came available and it makes perfect sense, right? That's a different thing. I think also that could work. That's maybe a place to start. But acquisition as a strategy, which For is where- talent to retain and collect that talent. Ta yeah, talent. I mean, it's all the above. I mean, we can acquire assets and people at a reduced cost than if we were to do it organically when it's done right. So it is a growth tactic. And it was interesting, you talked about the baby boomers. What got me thinking about acquisitions many years ago, I'm in a business owner peer group and cross-functional, all different types of businesses. A good friend of mine who's in the group, his family owns an auction realty company. And he said to our group, this is probably close to a decade ago, he said, our country's about to experience the largest exchange of wealth we've ever seen. And it's the baby boomers mm -hmm. exchanging that wealth moving to the next generation. And I remember thinking to myself, man, he's sitting in front of a wave of that in the auction realty business. You know, mm -hmm. how do I position myself to do that? And, and then the idea of acquiring other shops came about. But the last thing I'll say on that is if that is going to be an, a growth strategy, 
there's a significant amount of structure and systems and processes that one needs to have in place to be able to do that effectively. Because as Jason said, there's challenges with with everyone, but having those structure in place is really important. The operating system that you operate all of your businesses with, what best practices can we share amongst any company that we buy? That's right. Yeah. Are you talking about like just your the way we do business yeah. would be like the first place to yeah. start. Like yeah. this is the Zenger's way of doing business. This is the Nick's way of doing business. Yeah, and we've actually, we've come to recognize over the years of doing that, that's actually one of our single biggest core competencies mm-hmm. in a value proposition. So we're actually in the process right now of looking at packaging that as its own business. We're calling it Fabricators Collective. And we're, we're looking at even offering that to other companies in our industry, companies that we're not acquiring, but might be, outside of our competitive area. Like a franchisee is? Yeah, we would offer those services to them to say, here's our playbook, so to speak, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that we've developed. Really interesting. Wow. So as you've expanded, have you guys run into cash flow problems, financing problems? Do you do all seller financing? Like, What kind of advice would you give to somebody that was like, I do want to look at acquiring Joe's Machine Shop down the street for me, and I just want to do it opportunistically for the time being before I create a strategy? How did you go about funding that? Yeah, we're doing it all the old-fashioned way. We don't have any private investors at this time. It's all through traditional lending, cash flow, and then seller financing. And I mean, I think the easiest way to summarize it is our strategy is to tie up the least amount of cash possible. Because keep in mind that the acquisitions are only a third of our growth. We still have to buy new machines. Mm-hmm. We still need to expand. We just did a over a million dollar expansion on one of our shops, the existing shop. So we're trying to tie up the least amount of cash possible. But yeah, there's been times where there's cash flow crunches. We've learned as we've grown and evolved, we've got more sophisticated in our treasury management. Of course, bringing in a professional CFO is a mm-hmm. big part of that. Yeah. Do you usually shy away from bank debt as opposed to like going after seller finance debt when you do an acquisition? Well, we certainly push for as much seller financing as possible. You know, yeah. of course, there's always that balance between what the seller's comfortable carrying mm-hmm. versus what kind of a down payment they need. But there's always some component of that. That's really important because they need to have skin in the game too. These are typically small businesses we're acquiring that are somewhat dependent on the owner, right? Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. in order for us to make them put their money where their mouth is, they're taking on a component of that financing to say that they believe in it as well. Right, right. There's a risk that they're taking on that. Yeah. The owner is like, so you acquire a company, how long typically would you keep the owner involved? Do they consult or are they just clean break? They're out of it. It's my company now. It's a, it all varies. Yeah. The, yeah. Everyone we've done has been different. Yeah. yeah. But I would imagine in this industry or a machine shop, it's much more important to have the owner stay on. Because of the much, skeletons, right? Like yeah, you don't well, know what... I mean, it's have different. I think our businesses are different. I think it's more important that if you're buying a machine shop, there's relationships that that owner has with their yeah, book skeletons of business. Wasn't, wasn't really the right yeah. word. It's more like there's things that there's you only nuances. know through the experience. Yeah, you nuances. can't just pick it up and yeah. know it. Yeah. I would it's say it's different than to like keep a franchise. You well, know what I, mean? I think this is where, going back to what you said, that every deal yeah. is going to be different. Totally. And I have a scenario. So one of our good integration clients, they just bought somebody else and the owner had been absent for a couple of years. The company used to run every machine, two shifts. 
sales have cut back because of the absentee ownership. And he bought the company specifically because he needed more machine time and he needed more machinists. He needed to put his jobs on their machines. They're running like one shift, most of the machines. And now he bought the company and he can, you know, shift sure. a bunch of jobs over to that facility. So there's all different kinds and didn't need the owner anymore. Right. Because right. he or she hasn't been there for a while anyway. Yeah. So he mostly just acquired the capital equipment more than anything. Yeah. In that situation. Absolutely. So Matthew, this has been a pleasure. I've certainly learned a lot and this gives me something to think about. You know, I feel like I've grown maybe somewhere in between growth and rapid scaling. You know what I mean? And what decision do I want to make for the future? So this definitely gives me something to think about. How about you, Nick? I have one final question for you. So have you been listening to Making Chips prior to... Yeah, yeah, I've listened to several episodes. And like when we visited you, you had already kind of had a little bit of experience with who we are and and just kind of normal guys in the industry. I know what you're going to say. Who do you like the most? Well, I mean, everybody knows the new guy is the best. But who has the nicest beard? I have the only beard. Well, you got a little scruff going, Jim. Yeah, a little bit. But what I wanted to say, and this will be a little bromantic, I think you're a super bright guy who's grown a business and done some amazing things. And you listen to. Are our you trying podcast. to get something, Nick? Yeah, no, Nick. I, just I say can he, feel that he gets yeah. value out of our podcast, and I want to put you on speed dial so I can ask you questions as I start to take over for my father. And it's just really humbling that people like Matthew listen to our show and get value out of it. Yeah. We, I think we get more value out of our guests than we get from them. I've yeah. learned a ton they, over 300 episodes. Yeah, too. absolutely. So. Totally. I've learned way more from our guests than I have from you two. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, we skipped over the manufacturing news because oh, we, we got to go back to that. You're yes. right, Jim. Okay. Yeah. So Matthew, you mentioned this morning, you were staying in this hotel and just randomly one of the fabricator associations was there, right? Oh, so, no, you're um, kidding. so go ahead and tell us what, what happened. <laughs> we and, and, are in Chicago. Yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Isn't that crazy? Oh my God. So tell us what happened and tell us what you learned and share that with the metalworking nation, please. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm staying in the uh, hotel. Uh, what you you told me where the Hyatt. Hyatt, Hyatt. I'm staying at the Hyatt Regency, and uh, lo and behold, the Fabricators and Manufacturers Association is having a, a small the FMA. Conf- FMA, yeah, which we're members of. So they're there. I was actually down at the hotel bar watching the national championship game last yeah. night, and I Good noticed comeback. all these people. I'm like, they're from FMA. So this morning, the keynote was from 9 to 10, and it just timing worked out. So I just walked down and talked to one of the gentlemen. I said, listen, i got to leave in like 45 minutes, but I'd love to just listen in. He said, sure, just go in the back of the room and listen in. So the topic was a steel market update, which is oh. top of mind for most fabrics. Right. Yeah, right this is hot. Yeah. yeah. And so now I'll preface this by saying that I am by no means an expert at this. And so the comments I have— You're not an economist? They're timely— but outside of that, I don't know what else I can add. I mean, they're fresh this morning from this, the people sure, on the topic. Sure, we'll, we'll so teach us something. The only thing, I mean, of course, most people know the market was trending down again. And then since the you know, Russia war started invading Ukraine, that the market's gone crazy again. Well, they're calling and, it a conflict, but it's actually a war. Right, right, <laughs> yes. yeah. So a lot of the pig iron that comes in as a raw material to produce steel, actually there's three primary suppliers of that. It's Brazil, Russia, and Ukraine. Yeah. So two of the three are pretty much out of commission right now. Uh, So there is real substance behind the price increase. And we talked about that on a previous episode of Making Chips, that people don't realize how critical the Ukraine is to the manufacturing industry. They assumed it about Russia. Yeah, yeah, I did not know that. 
I yeah. didn't either, to be honest yeah. with you. So the only Ukraine other takeaway, is a huge country. Yeah. The only other takeaway I have is that they pointed out that lead times are a leading indicator of price going up and down, which is obvious. But when you see it on demand. a line graph, it's yeah. really interesting. So that's just a neat tidbit I took away. Okay. Cool. So we need to look at lead times as it relates to where the pricing From is the going. Mills, yeah. so From as, the mills. Yeah. So as the mills lead times start to creep out, that's a maybe a 30-day leading indicator of where the price index might go. Were they forecasting anything up or down at this point? Like typical economists, they won't. They're just going to give reasons for either. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm glad we didn't forget to cover that news because we foreshadowed it at the beginning and then, oh yeah, we should probably cover that at the end. So Jim, what did you learn here today? Did you learn that you're not going to do an acquisition or what does your growth outlook look like? I don't think that acquisition is right for me. Mm -hmm. I like leading with organic growth. Mm Mm-hmm. It feels good for me, and that's what we've been doing for the last five years. You're going to sit on a one-peg chair. No, I didn't say that. (laughs) (laughs) You said that. I didn't say that. He's on a unicycle. I'm much more... I'm alluding to what Matthew talked about about his strategy. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So that's what I learned from this. I'm always learning from our guests, and just keep going in the direction I'm going. Yeah. We've had fantastic growth over the last five years, so oh, I'm not complaining. There's, see, in your operation, there's yeah. a lot of things that we can learn from you and a lot yeah. of things that we could do, do Thank better. You. I Thanks. mean, it's a top, top-notch shop. So. Thanks. Thanks. So, Metalworking Nation, if you learned anything from our guests today or from this podcast, we would appreciate if you would share this with another manufacturing leader, share it with somebody at your shop, at your business. I mean, that's really what we're doing this for. We're doing this in order to equip and inspire manufacturing leaders. And the way to get the word out is for you to hit the share button on your podcast player, send a text message to your friend that's and say, check out. this out. There you that's go. I found Thank out. you, so Matt. Another yeah. machine shop guy told me you need to listen to this podcast. There you really? go. That's and awesome. that's how we get the word out. It's just organically. We're not acquiring any other podcasts out there. So, yeah. <laughs> so let's keep paying it forward. But we are launching individual podcasts very soon. There so you go. I'm yeah, it's coming. That. So Matthew, thank you for coming on as a guest. And maybe we'll have to chat back with you later. Hey, do you know what we say to end every show? If you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam! Thanks for listening to the Making Chips Podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So, Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution. And many of them are at makingchips.com.